Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Dr. Lee No. Dr. No is a licensed naturopathic doctor based in Canada. He has held positions as medical advisor, scientific evaluator, and director of research and development for major organizations. He is the author of the new book, Mitochondria and the Future of Medicine, The Key to Understanding Disease, Chronic Illness, Aging, and Life Itself. Lee, thanks so much for coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I mean, that's quite a title of a book too. So it's all about life itself. That's what we're going to get get into today, that that easy talking topic. <laughs> yeah, of course it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> so um, f- the first thing I want to ask you, do you think you're a mitochondriac? So have you ever come across that term? I have uh, in the sense that I'm fascinated with mitochondria and I look at everything from the perspective of mitochondria, but I've also heard of that term uh, from the opposite end. So uh, more more in thinking uh, uh, of it as uh, almost like hypochondriac, but um, but related to the mitochondria as well. So so yeah, I, I, I take the, uh, the, the first view. Yeah, no, and uh, when I had a look online for a little uh, dictionary reference, the one I found that was interesting, which you might like, is a biochemist with a chronic and unusual intense interest in mitochondria. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I love it how they had to define unusual intense. Unusual <laughs> intense. So anyway, yeah, you've, um, so you've done a lot of research into these things called mitochondria. And for anyone who doesn't even know what that word means today, we're, t- we're basically talking about the things that make energy in our body and keep us alive. And that's why it's going to be so interesting to find out how can we help these little things in our body so we can produce better energy, more energy, and just live a great life, life right. itself, as you mentioned. So if you could maybe start us off with then just explain to someone, what is a mitochondria? Okay, so yeah, so I'll, I'll kind of, you know, time travel back with everyone to their high school days where we learned about um, cell biology in, in, in high school biology. And uh, basically what we learned was uh, there are, the cell has many different types of organelles. And the best way to look at organelles to a cell is very similar to organs are to our body. So they're distinct structures that carry out um, defined uh, um, actions. So with uh, just like the liver has certain actions in our body and the spleen and the lungs, well, the mitochondria for the cell, its function is to produce energy. And in fact, when you consider that, uh, you know, everything that happens within a cell uh, from the obvious, uh, like when, when you look at uh, organs or uh, tissues, like with the muscle and you contract the muscle, I think it's pretty obvious that that, that takes energy. Uh, but even just, you know, the maintenance of the cytoskeleton or the transfer of ions across uh, cell membranes, all that takes energy. And it's the mitochondria that's responsible for producing over 90% of that energy. So when you look at uh, the importance of the mitochondria within a cell, when you consider everything that happens in a cell requires energy, you can see that when mitochondria don't function well, everything else starts to, uh, starts to fall apart. Mm-hmm. So you've already touched on how important these things are because they're making ninety percent of our energy. So what I, I did hear in, a, in another talk you gave that you said there's three f- sources of energy that the body uses. Is it? 
Right. Yeah. So three phases. Uh, so the first phase is what we call glycolysis, and that actually doesn't even happen within the mitochondria. So that is the the uh, where, where I say ten percent of the uh, the energy within a cell is produced. Um, but out of glycolysis, the end products then get transferred into the mitochondria, where it participates in the next two two phases of energy production. So the next phase after glycolysis uh, happens in the innermost part of the mitochondria, called the matrix, and this is where uh, Krebs cycle um, occurs. Um, I think we all learned it as the Krebs cycle. Uh, more recently, it's been called that tricarboxylic acid cycle or TCA. And then out of that cycle come other molecules that get fed into the last uh, phase of energy production called the electron transport chain. And this is where uh, the energy from those molecules uh, get transferred uh, and used to pump hydrogen ions uh, across cell membranes. And then, and then to make a long story short, those hydrogen ions flow back, back through a channel to, to create energy. Okay, so it's it's quite in depth there. But um, did you? I don't know. I don't think you mentioned the little molecule ATP also there. Did you? And is that no, in that second? Is that in the second phase? That that's in the third phase. Okay. So that is uh, yeah. So when we talk about energy at the cellular level, uh, we're essentially talking about ATP or adenosine triphosphate. So basically, an adenosine molecule with three phosphates attached to it. Okay. Yeah. Because so, yeah. yeah, that's always when if anyone listens to people talking about our oh, energy it's atp energy and how do you boost that in your body because that's really what we're talking about here is that there's these little organs in a cell that make energy and that energy is what keeps us alive so anything we can do to help make more atp is not a bad thing right yeah, yeah. okay and i love it that you brought up electrons already because just to sort of this is something we'll get onto later in the discussion but um, this is like grounding and people might already understand electrons maybe basically from that point where they go oh so I know if I take my shoes and socks off touch the ground with my bare feet um, ch I'm changing electrons with the earth and we're and you're saying here how important those are for, for, at a cellular level yes yeah so yeah. I yeah yeah so. so so this is where it gets really interesting though uh, and a little bit more nuanced as well because uh, when you look at the electrons in the mitochondria, um, they can have very significant benefits. Of course, that is what is transferred from one complex to the next in the electron transport chain to create energy. So we absolutely need those electrons. Uh, but they can also kind of spill out of the electron transport chain uh, prematurely. And that's when things start to go wrong because those electrons then create uh, free radicals, which um, are not always bad, I should mention. Uh, I know I think a lot of times we, we think of free radicals as a bad thing. Uh, but in these, in some cases, free radicals can be a good thing. But depending on the, uh, the background context of when and where these free radicals are produced, uh, they can be a bad thing. And when, you're, when we're talking about free radicals spilling out of the electron transport chain, often they do create uh, those harmful free radicals. Okay. So that's something that we need to be, uh, to be aware of. Yeah. And so that... that gets me thinking too um because there's a we're talking also about like a spectrum of mitochondrial dysfunction here which could be very mild or it could be com very severe and some and the severe cases tend to make news headlines of poor children born with issues and then they only survive a very short period of time which right. might just maybe briefly explain to people like that spectrum like what is mild versus an, an example of an extreme case of mitochondrial dysfunction? Sure, yeah. So 
it's one of the mild ends. So uh, we're all born with, uh, or we're hopefully all born with healthy functioning mitochondria. And uh, this is separate from those that are born with uh, genetic mitochondrial disease, I, sh- I should mention, uh, where you're born with kind of defect- defective mitochondria. And that's at the other end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. But uh, when we're born, we typically have, you know, well-functioning mitochondria. But there, there are differences in, uh, from one person to a to the next. And some might already have a few um, genetic defects, but not enough to impact the level of energy that's produced. Um, In those uh, situations, it might not take a lot of insult from environmental toxins, as an example, uh, to cross that threshold where we now have a problem with energy production. And uh, in, in some cases, that is not only very uh, slow in its progression, but sometimes, uh, you know, a lot of times people might not even know that they, they have this. So uh, a, a good example, and I, I mentioned this in my book, is that uh, some some people might grow up thinking, you know, they were, they just never had that endurance to be good at um, at sports. Uh, but they, they typically live a normal, healthy life otherwise. Um, but then it gets a full range of the spectrum all the way to the other extreme. Like I said, especially when we're looking at mitochondrial disease and in extreme cases, uh, these are children that are born with uh, very dysfunctional mitochondria. They don't produce enough energy and they often have a very short lifespan, um, mm-hmm. often with all sorts of different health conditions. And, um, and unfortunately, many times uh, they, they develop uh, early cancer as well. Mm-hmm. So, I guess for us, we're not we're not going to go into the end range of the severe spectrum. This is going to be the everyday person, like right. you and me, and how we can sort of hack our mitochondria. So, how can we optimize these little guys so that we feel full of energy? Mm-hmm. Um, so, for me, there, what I like to think of then to maybe try help people to understand is what you you touched on it already a little bit with environment. What are other some? What would you say are some other common causes? that would deplete the ability of these mitochondria to work well. Okay. Yeah. So, so I did, I, I did mention environmental toxins and, and I, I should mention there are many, uh, some are easier to avoid than others. Um, but uh, a number of different pesticides, as an example, have been shown to, to damage, uh, the functioning of mitochondria. Uh, a whole host of different pharmaceutical drugs have also been uh, shown to, to damage the health of mitochondria. And the ones that I, I, I particularly point out is that uh, antibiotics, especially certain classes of antibiotics, have uh, have a fairly uh, strong negative impact to mitochondria. But then there's the statin medications, uh, which are the, the number one prescribed class of drugs in the world. And these are uh, used to lower cholesterol. Um, but they, they've also been shown to deplete uh, a key component of the electron transport chain. So, of course, you deplete that, you're not going to be able to produce energy. Um, There are um, artificial food colors that have been linked to dysfunctional mitochondria. Um, But the thing that is probably most relevant um, to the general population is when you have an imbalance uh, of supply versus uh, versus demand. So, um, and this is one of the reasons why um, things like overeating and being sedentary have been linked to so many different degenerative health conditions. Uh, so let's just talk, talk about, you know, oversupply uh, to, to start. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a situation where you're, you're eating too much. Um, so you're eating too much and you have too much supply. Um, 
for the demand. So even, and, and this is, mind you, I'm not just talking about sedentary individuals here. I'm talking about, you know, you could be physically fit, but if you're consuming far too many uh, uh, calories, so to speak, uh, for what you actually need, what ends up happening is all those calories that you consume uh, get digested and, you know, all those molecules get transferred to all the cells and then uh, broken down in, in the cells, goes through glycolysis and, glycolysis and the TCA cycle, and then those molecules start to enter the electron transport chain as electrons. So basically, every time you eat something, you're essentially going to break it down into electrons. And the problem is, is like, like I said, when you have those electrons going through the electron transport chain, that's fine. Um, uh, but you really want those electrons to get to the end, which is complex four. So may, maybe just backtrack a little bit again. Um, you, we have complex one and complex two, and that's both are the start of the electron transport chain. They pass their electrons off to coenzyme Q10, and then over to complex three, then to cytochrome C. I hope I'm not getting too complex here. <laughs> and then finally, complex four. Now, complex four is, is a unique spot in the electron transport chain because that is the only area in the body where we can take those electrons, enzymatically react them with oxygen to create water. Uh, what happens in a situation, though, where those electrons don't end up reaching complex four, they spill out of the electron transport chain and prematurely react with oxygen and create a superoxide free radical. So, um, like I said, I, I don't want to give you the impression that's that that's always bad, but in the context of overeating, because we remember we have to put this into context of what else is happening, and if you have too much supply versus demand, those superoxide free radicals are typically typically going to be seen as a bad thing in the cell and go on to inflict damage. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why we really want to make sure that we're not going to overconsume food uh, when our bodies don't actually need all that energy. So how would, I'm just trying to think, how would someone know they're over-consuming food, would you say? Um, so, because you, you, you did mention you could be fit, but you could be consuming too many calories or too, mm -hmm. or too much food too. So yeah. I, I guess there you would wonder, like, you would use your body as a sign to say, no, but I, I look physically fit. But now, how would I? Like, do you have a reference? How how would you? Yeah, say it, this is it, it's it's very difficult uh, to to answer that question. Now it can be answered, um, but it it involves you know being in a laboratory setting, uh, okay. looking at your your metabolism, all that stuff, uh, which is pretty much out of the question for the general population. So uh, the the, the take home point for this is really just monitor your 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 food consumption and and try not to overeat whatever that means for a particular individual that you know it, it's going to vary depending on the individual but the idea is to kind of be mindful of of overconsumption um I, I wish i had a better answer for you but at this time the the technology really only exists in the lab so okay. uh yeah and that's also got me thinking do you th because you know intermittent fasting or fasting protocols have become so more mainstream or popular uh, recently mm -hmm. would you say from a mitochondria point of view that fasting or intermittent fasting is a good thing yes yeah so so there is actually uh, some good research to show that um or, or emerging research that that shows intermittent fasting excuse me um does have benefits to the mitochondria and um not just um intermittent fasting and, and that's an easier way to do something else called calorie restriction where uh you you are dramatically reducing the number of calories you eat and what's interesting is um 
calorie restriction is considered the, the best way or sorry, the most consistent way uh, when you look across all different species that have been studied uh, to extend lifespan. Uh, And what's interesting is that according to the newest research, it's actually the mitochondria and its functioning that determines our lifespan. So when you look at, when you kind of pull all the different pieces together, you can see that, you know, consuming less calories um, is probably a, a better thing for your health and longevity. Um, but intermittent fasting is definitely a way to, to go about it in a way that is probably a little bit more manageable. So and that also brings up the other other point. Um, you know, a lot of times people eat uh, a late night snack, uh, you know, just before we're going to lay down and have pretty much no energy demand uh, for the next eight hours or so. Um, that is one of the reasons why, you know, late night snacks is, and I'm simplifying here, but uh, one of the reasons why it's probably not a good idea to eat those snacks so late at night when you're not going to be expending those, uh, those energy, uh, that energy and electrons. Okay, that's good. Good to know. Also, um, I don't know if you've ever seen this thing, but this is an aura ring that measures your sleep. And, oh, it, nice. and it also tells you like, hey, did you eat something a bit late? Because it can see when your heart rate occurred, you know, in the cycle. Oh, and, cool. And so I'm just already thinking here. Yeah, it's like I also um I also had another circadian biologist on, and she said the exact same thing. Like if you eat too late, it affects your skin's ability the next day to protect itself from the sun mm. if you did it chronically. But I'm just thinking, and now you're just highlighting again. Yeah, don't eat too late because it's not so great for your mitochondria in the long term. Right. Yeah. So yeah. there's so many benefits here that I'm just trying to help sort of key different points for people to hear to understand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, oh, yeah. Sure, so, right. So you mentioned um, the oversupply, um, mm-hmm. and then there was the other side of it, over demand, yeah. was it? Yeah. yeah. So, um, so we talked about too much supply, but also um, not enough demand for the energy okay. that you produce. Uh, so this is where being sedentary comes into play. So uh, again, we know being sedentary, a uh, sedentary lifestyle, has been linked to all sorts of different degenerative diseases, um, but. When you look at the mitochondria, it's an easy way to explain it because, again, when we are, you know, all those electrons that we consume are going through the electron transport chain, uh, producing energy in the form of ATP. Well, what ends up happening is uh, when we produce ATP, it's produced from its building blocks of ADP, which is adenosine diphosphate, so an adenosine molecule with two phosphates. And then it takes a third phosphate and attaches it to create ATP. Uh, so you can see that the building blocks is um, ADP. The only way to get ADP again is to actually use up ATP. So when we our bodies use that energy, it actually breaks off that third phosphate, recreates the ADP and phosphate, which then gets cycled back. So it's, it's just a continuous cycle. The problem is, is if we're sedentary and we're not using up that ATP, we're not generating the the precursor or the the building blocks, so uh, their ADP becomes uh, uh, comes in short supply. Uh, so what happens then is that the, the 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 structure in the cell that creates ATP it's called ATP synthase. Uh, without the building blocks necessary for it to function, it's it slows down or in the worst case scenario shuts down and what happens then is that there's a a, a backlog all the way down the electron transport chain so um the elect the the electrons stop flowing through the electron transport chain and what ends up happening 
though, is that there are more electrons that want to enter but have nowhere to go. Uh, so those electrons spill out, again, prematurely react with oxygen to create superoxide-free radicals. And uh, that is one of the reasons why it's, it's extremely important to make sure that you're physically active. You're constantly using up that ATP so that you can regenerate the, 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 the pool of ADP that's needed to keep, uh, make sure that that, um, that um, structure that produces ATP is continuing to run smoothly. So that's just incredible stuff to, for people to, you know, we're always told you've got to just keep moving. You know, movement is health. Um, you don't have to. I had Ben Greenfield on, and he and he said, uh, "Yeah, there's a difference between exercise and moving. Like we should should all be moving, and then exercise is just a different intensity, which is right. true." Mm-hmm. And what I'm getting from you here is that, yeah, there's this is another important aspect to just generalize movement, fidgeting, keep busy, because mm-hmm. then you're able to get these ADPs, these foundations, to then make more ATP again, some more energy again. So you, yeah, we don't we uh, we need to sort of be moving around and would you say just that's actually one of the because i want to get on to how you would optimize some of your mitochondria and so the first thing here is just general movement that's enough to to get this adp you don't have to do like high intensity exercise or run a marathon or something like that no not at all yeah you're right it's just really just get moving that's the most important thing of course if you can uh, increase the intensity there are other benefits, and we can get to get, uh, get to that. But uh, it just in terms of generate, um, you know, using up that ATP that's been generated, just movement um, is all that's needed. And I've heard the catchphrase "movement is medicine," and that's that's exactly it. You know, um, there are there are enough studies now that link um, sitting uh, the the length of time you sit in a day is directly correlated with your risk of various health conditions. So even if you're uh, a fit athletic person um, that undertakes, you know, strenuous physical activity, the length of time you sit is still an independent risk factor. So, you know, the, the idea is to just move all day um, if you can. Yeah. Well, I've always dreamt, I haven't set up my own desk that way I should really, but I, I've always dreamt to like fidget desks. So you could sort of work at your, your laptop or your computer, but you're generating just subtle movement all the time. Right. um in some way or another so but you don't have to chronically stand or chronically sit you just get to fidget like humans that's do we fidget so yeah that's a good um, idea actually <laughs> um so i'm just thinking now okay great um so movement is key but you did already touch on that we could take it for any serious people here we could take it another level to actually grow more mitochondria from what i understand through yeah. exercise mm-hmm. and this is where the um the real benefits come from and it and before I go any further, I want to emphasize that, um, you know, what I'm about to talk about is probably the single greatest thing for mitochondrial health. Um, we can talk about, you know, reducing our exposure to, uh, to environmental toxins. We can talk about nutritional therapies that, that support the health of mitochondria, things like that. But when you look at all the, all the evidence to this point, the single greatest thing, if you, could, if you have, to, have to choose one thing to do for your, the health of your mitochondria, it's moderate intensity physical activity. And this is because, uh, like, like you said, it, uh, it generates more mitochondria. So what, what this means, um, and I'll try to explain this without getting too technical, is that when we, uh, when, when we exercise, uh, we, we create a certain level of demand, energetic demand on ourselves. And, you know, 
as long as you don't overdo it, there is, uh, you know, the, the cells go under a healthy stress and as a result creates more mitochondria. It thinks, you know, I don't have enough energy to meet the demand of this particular physical a level of physical activity and the body adapts by producing more mitochondria. Uh, the great thing about this, and one of the reasons why what we call mitochondrial biogenesis is so important, is that now you have more mitochondria producing more ATP. So the next time you go out and do exercise again, you now have greater mitochondria to meet that demand. Uh, and you continue to kind of slowly increase the intensity, just continuing to divide those mitochondria and create more mitochondria and energy in the, in the cell. But the important thing is, is that at rest, which is the vast majority of the day, even for elite athletes, at rest, that metabolic demand is now divided up amongst many more mitochondria. So each individual mitochondria is under considerably less stress and, um, and therefore producing a lot more, a lot sorry, a lot less of those damaging free radicals. So, you know, you, you, you put that into context over a lifespan, you're, you're seeing tremendous health benefits um, in those individuals that undertake an exercise program versus those that, that, that don't. And really, and again, I'm simplifying here, but that is essentially how it works, is that you're creating more mitochondria uh, and dividing that load, that stress amongst all those mitochondria as opposed to all that load on just a few mitochondria that's you know going to have to work overtime and uh and, and break down eventually yeah i like that I, I didn't quite realize so you're making more of these like worker bees these workers that can take the load of the system versus only dumping all the stress onto a couple of people and mm -hmm. burning and burning them out right and so that's why exercise makes more of these workers which we need yes yeah yeah and um can we lose some of those workers by going more sedentary? Does it does the reverse happen? It absolutely does. Yeah, and that's the incredible thing with with our bodies. It, it's always adapting, and unfortunately, it's going to adapt to a sedentary lifestyle as well. Um, so, if you're sedentary, your body gets a signal that hey, you know what? I have all this extra mitochondria laying around, and I don't even really need that. So, what's that, what, what's going to end up happening? is that over time, uh, and this happens over the course of, uh, of, of a few weeks, um, our cells will, you'll, you'll start to notice that our cells have fewer and fewer mitochondria. Uh, so again, um, not just physical activity and being active is important, but making sure that you're doing that on a consistent basis so you don't have that negative ad adaptation. Hmm. Okay. And so this it's just got you i love this because people get me thinking of different things and you got me thinking about how yeah we're told exercise is so important for cardiovascular health but now i'm thinking yeah it's because your heart and your brain are, are two of the biggest areas where we have most of the mitochondria is that that's right that's right yeah and, and so i'm just thinking here so that's another reason why moderate exercise is good for our heart because does it mean that we make more mitochondria in our heart through exercise, do you think? We do, yes. And we make more mitochondria in our brain, potentially, by Absolutely. exercise? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and that's a cool thing. And that's one of the, the, the things that connects, you know, the, the brain and the heart. Um, uh, it is our, our, adap our adaptation at the mitochondrial level. Um, and, and so one of the things that uh, you'll see is that a lot of times you look at the health benefits of physical activity uh, to to the heart. Um, anytime you see a, a you know a, a 
a study that shows benefit to the heart, you can almost always translate that or extrapolate those results to the brain because we're, we're starting to see that, you know, when you look at energy intense organs like the brain and the heart, um, they're going to have the same adaptations. And so when you, when you exercise, it's going to benefit everything. Yeah, so it's not just a blood flow thing. It's there's there's other elements to the health That's spectrum right. here. Yeah, well, it, of course there is an element to blood flow, and then yeah. the important thing with blood flow is that it carries that oxygen and those nutrients to the cells, so that our we can feed our mitochondria. So of course, blood flow is absolutely critical. Um, but even if you go uh, a couple levels deeper, um, it there is that link at the uh, at the level of the mitochondria. Wow. And just a, a quick question whilst we're talking about blood. Is it correct that red blood cells don't have mitochondria? Are they the only cell in the body that doesn't? Yeah. And this is what I came across in my research is that uh, there are, you know, pr pretty much every cell in the body contains mitochondria. And m m mind you, uh, we should also point out that the, the number of mitochondria in any particular cell or tissue is really um, dictated by the energetic demand. So when we talk about things like the brain and the heart, which are very intense metabolic uh, organs, uh, you know, we might expect to see a couple thousand mitochondria per cell. Um, but what, what I came across that I found really interesting was that red blood cells contain few, if any, uh, mitochondria. And I, I couldn't really figure out why. I mean, they, they, it still has metabolic demands that it needs to... Um, to meet, but I guess there it's so uh, metabolically uh, inactive, so to speak. Even though there is a little bit of energy demand there, that it probably is able to meet those energetic demands through you know just simple glycolysis. Um, I'm guessing, but yeah, I, it's something. It's an interesting thing that I came across that I, I never really got to the the bottom of why why these red blood cells really don't have uh, mitochondria. Yeah, especially when they're like the basis of life and and our red blood cells, we need them too. Yeah. So it's kind of weird like, yeah, so why do the things that also keep us alive not have the things that we need as the base of life? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, if we probably move on from exercise now, um, when it comes to diets, do you have a preference of diets or do you see benefits for different kinds of diets? Because, you know, People eat in such a variety of ways. And a lot of listeners to the Biohackers Lab podcast, they've probably been exposed to or they're practicing things like ketogenic diet, low-carb diets, uh, carnivore diets, one of the latest ones. Um, I, I just wondered, do you have any thoughts or feelings about how your diet might negatively or positively influence your mitochondria, your energy production? Yeah, so so I think that there are a number of different diets that are beneficial to the mitochondria, but I think it really depends on your particular situation. And um, as an example, if you're you're looking for life extension uh, and to reduce the risk of you know age related related degenerative diseases, it, it it would appear that something like calorie restriction would would be the the way to go. Um, but if you're looking at, you know, improving the symptoms of uh, Alzheimer's, as an example, uh, where, you know, we, we have known energetic deficiencies in, in the brain, um, you know, something like a ketogenic diet, uh, nutritional ketogenic diet uh, would be would be the, the, the better approach. So it really depends on the individual. And it's very difficult to generalize any one particular diet over another Um because I think that the ideal diet will depend on, on, you know, your your own situation and what mm -hmm. you're trying to achieve. 
But, and, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, all those diets that you just mentioned do have a place um, uh, for, for certain individuals. And we discussed it before we started recording too about the concept of N equals one. And, you know, you, we are all individuals at the end of the day too. And yeah. I know you had some, you, you said some good points about, yeah, uh, you, you, as you've done, you've, you've done all the research, you've done, you've read all the papers and they've done big studies on lots of different peoples and generalized results. But at the end of the day, we need to make a decision on the person. So we try yeah. to take all this information in the world, but we have to try and make a clinical decision about this person who's in front of us right now. Absolutely. And, yeah. And that's exactly what you're saying. Even when it comes to diet, it's very individual to the person. Mm. Yeah. And I'll give you the example with my, my son. Uh, and this is not necessarily related to, to mitochondria, but just a, an illustration of that N equals one, because um, we found out early on in my, my, my son's life, my older son, that uh, he's sensitive to artificial food colors. So when he has artificial food colors, you know, it, he becomes very hyperactive. Um, and, and I guess this has been reported enough um, by parents that there was actually a study. They, they, I think um, they called it uh, the Southampton study. And, and they looked at what they called the Southampton colors. So it was the reds, oranges, and yellows. And uh, what they found was they gave, you know, a, a, this big population of children uh, these artificial food dyes. And did a statistical analysis on it and then came to the conclusion that, no, there's no correlation between the intake of artificial food colors and the, the symptoms of hyperactivity. But, but again, that is looking at, you know, a population and taking a statistical average, so to speak. Um, but when you, if you were to ask me or any other parent that has a kid that is sensitive, you know for 100% sure that that study is not representative of, of your child. Uh, mm -hmm. so it's important. And, and so, you know, I, I, I might go to a health practitioner that read this study and say, Oh no, your son can eat artificial food. Clearly there's no problem with that. Look, this study shows so, uh, says so. Um, but you know that, that, uh, that is not, um, telling you the truth at an individual level It's just telling you what uh, is happening at a population level. So absolutely, um, to just to kind of reinforce what you're saying, we really need to be able to take those big studies, uh, and take the learnings from that, but we also need to be mindful, especially in clinical practice uh, and for practitioners, to ensure that we're we're delivering um, healthcare um, that's suitable for that particular individual. Mm -hmm. And um, what I'd like to also then look at is: Have you ever looked at? psychology or social interaction and what it does to mitochondria did you come across any papers that looked at people who practiced laughter therapy and did it boost their mitochondria or people who were lonely and they noticed that that was that negatively affected their atp production or some link there admittedly i have not but i would not have any doubt that there is some sort of link um, now when you look at um, what impacts mitochondria? It is. It seems like it's right across the board. Uh, so even though I haven't come across any studies um, that fell on my radar, it's not to say that those studies don't exist, or uh, not to say that if those studies were done to to be done, that we wouldn't see some sort of uh, of a relationship. But um, but yeah, to to my knowledge, at least according to what I've researched, I haven't come across it. But it would definitely be something to. Um, to look into because I, I, I absolutely believe that that has, you know, your, your 
your your cognition, your mental state, your emotional state has a has a tremendous impact to to all areas of your life, and and that that shouldn't be any different with the mitochondria. Yeah, I always um, it you know when I look at someone, sometimes I just think of them as like a battery cell, and so are they like at the red level because they're not fully charged up today, or are they full green bar today? Um, but the bit, one thing uh, I did find that um, I, I used to call it goosebump music. So if you, if you like, I don't know if you could probably think of a song that gives you goosebumps or just like you have to sing it in the car. It just makes you feel so good. Yeah. And you kind of wonder, you could have, be having a terrible day and you're feeling so low in energy and you put that song on and you're a completely different person like five minutes later. Right. And I'm just wondering from an ATP or mitochondria function, is it just that this, these little cells go, Hey, that's cool. Let's make <laughs> more, more of this stuff now. Or, yeah. But I guess no one's really looked too deep into that. Yeah. That, that would be an interesting study. Yeah. <laughs> to see how music impacts uh it's yeah yeah um could we look at environmental stuff so you've mentioned uh, you did touch on it a little bit earlier but um one guest i did have on before on the podcast was talking about emfs so that's also a bigish right. topic you know cellular towers and other wi-fi and other things do you believe they have any impact at a cellular level they do yeah uh, i um, I don't recall the exact uh, studies or what they concluded, but it is something that I came, came across. Now, it didn't um, make it into my book. And one of the things that um, that I'll, I'll mention is that there is so much. I mean, I could, you know, my I, I could continue to be researching right now. They're just uh, so let me backtrack. The <laughs> amount of studies coming out on the mitochondria um, is incredible. Uh, so I started this process uh, back around 2010, I would say. Uh, really starting to look into mitochondria. And at that time, I went to PubMed. Uh, do you know what PubMed is? It's, I've been there lots of times, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> may, may, I'm not sure if your your audience knows, but it's, a, it's but an online yeah, database. Pub, PubMed.com with all the yeah. science research in the world. Exactly. So you can go in and set up a search criteria. And uh, what it does is, it, uh, and I set it up so that it would send me an, a, a weekly email anytime, any any. Um, new article was indexed to that database that had anything to do with mitochondria. And um, since around 2010, and I, I would say it was going on long before that, but ever since 2010, these emails would come to me on a weekly basis. And it was listing, I'd say on average, about 300 wow. new articles or publications related to the mitochondria per week. Uh, now, mind you, that a lot of it's not necessarily clinical trials, actually very few clinical trials, but a lot, of, and there are others that have very little relevance to the mitochondria, but you know, it some in some way, shape, or form, it was linked to to the mitochondria, and that was on average three hundred publications every week for the last you know eight years. Um, so there is an incredible amount of research going on, um, and you know, I, I had to draw the line in in the sand at some point and start writing the book. Um, but yes, I did come across uh, a, a, you know a number of publications re with respect to um, electromagnetic fields and um, and other you know uh, things like that, where we, you know our, our modern lifestyle uh, has been shown to have some negative impacts. And so earthing, are you a fan of earthing? I am, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because we did touch on that earlier saying that if you go, if you actually touch the earth, that you, you do that electron transfer system. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I try to try to make sure that we're we're touching uh, the the ground. Um, obviously, where I am right now in, in Canada, it's 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 impossible. Uh, it's uh, it's snow outside, but in the summer, we we try to you know uh, walk bare feet uh, as as often as possible. Okay, so that's just yeah. I'm just thinking for actionable tips that people can do to boost their mitochondria, and earthing is a simple actionable tip too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That someone could do. Um, your favorite topic to get into the last bit um, of your time with me, but um, supplements. Could you just maybe mention? I know, I know, I think I know what your favorite supplement is that you would, you would <laughs> recommend. And then if you could mention some others that people could look at taking to help boost their mitochondria. Sure. Well, I guess my, my question to you then is what do you think is my favorite? <laughs> uh i have a sneaky sneaky suspicion it starts with a c and uh, it's got a number in it yes yeah well that that is definitely up there yeah so i would say that is either the top or one of the two top okay Uh, uh, so coins on q10 of course right yeah yeah so so this is really cool because um Quenzyme Q10, uh, for those that don't know, is a, a, what we call a vitamin-like nutrient. Um, and it's not officially classified as a vitamin because our bodies actually produce um, what we need, um, but we do get some from food and then, of course, supplements. Uh, the, the interesting thing here, though, is the older we get, the more vitamin-like it becomes because what ends up happening is our body starts to turn down the production of CoQ10. And so the older, as we age, so the older we get, the more important external sources uh, become. And it's, uh, it, um, I theorize, it's probably one of the, the, the one, you know, one of the things that your body can do to kind of slow down um, our, our lives, um, you know, start making things start to fall apart uh, after our reproductive years. You know, we've, we, we're beyond our reproductive years. Most likely we've had kids and now it's time for us to kind of make our exit and, and free up resources for our, the next generation. And, and I think, uh, and of course, this is just my theory, is uh, biology or, or nature has kind of built in uh, this automatic turndown of CoQ10 production. Um, because when you look at the electron transport chain, and I mentioned complex one and complex two are basically the, the, the two starting points of the electron transport chain. They both pass their electrons off to coenzyme Q10, which then goes on to pass the electrons off to complex three. So if you look at, if you're to look at a schematic of the electron transport chain and try to identify a bottleneck, it would be the availability of coenzyme Q10. So, uh, and, and studies on oxidative stress have actually pretty much confirmed that because the, the, first of all, I should also mention that uh, endogenous free radical production um, is considered the, the, the biggest factor in, in mitochondrial health. Uh, so the, the, uh, the free radicals that are generated within our, our mitochondria. But more specifically, complex one is the number one site of free radical production in, in our body. And that's because if you don't have enough CoQ10, those electrons are entering complex one but complex one has nowhere to, to pass its electrons off to. So uh, just like, you know, a train, um, and I use this analogy in, in my book, you know, you can think of each complex as a, as a train station. And each train station can only have one train there at a time. It, the, the next train can only arrive as, if the previous train left. And uh, what ends up happening is uh, if that train doesn't leave, 
um, the next one comes in and then creates a, a collision or an accident. And that's very similar to how things work in, in the electron transport chain. If there's not enough CoQ10 to accept that electron from complex one, well, there's that complex one is already occupied by an electron. And when another one tries to come in, you're going to create this collision and, and those are going to, those electrons are going to spill out and create those damaging free radicals. So, um, CoQ10 is, is absolutely one of my, my favorite ones. And it's, it's interesting because this is where my interest in CoQ, uh, in mitochondria really, really came into play because, um, I was consulting at, at one point for a company that, uh, that did significant business in coenzyme Q10 supplements. And, um, they had a particularly absorbable form of coenzyme Q10. And this is one of the, the, the limiting factors in its potential, uh, therapeutic potential is how well absorbed CoQ10 is. So this company did well because it had, uh, a product that was well absorbed and it was used in hospitals, et cetera. And this was at a time where uh, we um, we started to realize that age-related female infertility uh, was mainly due to, um, you know, mitochondria that were starting to fall apart. And, and uh, studies in rats started to show that, you know, by giving coenzyme Q10 to these these aged rats, they became fertile again. So a number of different uh, health, um, fertility clinics, at least in Canada, started to use coenzyme Q10. So I was invited to do a presentation for their doctors and nurses to help explain why they need to be recommending CoQ10 to their, their patients. So it all boiled down to, it all started with CoQ10. But what's interesting, again, because it's the bottleneck, uh, um, it it appears that when it comes to CoQ10, you want to have an, an excess. Uh, you want to make sure that you have a lot of CoQ10 laying around there um, and ready to, an ex- uh, to accept an electron from complex one and complex two, uh, as opposed to, you know, just a few where it's running back and forth from the different complexes, trying to shuttle electrons back and forth. And and that's where where problems can can start because if you if if it's not fast enough or it fumbles an electron again you're going to create those uh, those damaging free radicals so definitely coq10 is is uh, very important for anyone that is looking to have uh, use supplements for mitochondrial health so you'd say that would be a good that would be like a primary starter supplement yes yeah and, and, and i think for for most people uh, you know if you're in your um, teens or even in your 20s, probably not. Uh, unless you have a diagnosed CoQ10 deficiency, it's probably not something that you really need to take. Uh, just like I said, because our bodies actually produce enough of it. But uh, starting in our late 20s, early 30s, that's when we start to see, you know, a slow decline in our CoQ10 levels. And so, uh, you know, by the time you're in your 30s, again, if you're concerned about mitochondrial health, and I think everyone should be, uh, and that's mm-hmm. probably the, the best time to start as a healthy individual. And it, so it is something that you would say you would take every day and you can do it chronically. You can do it for the a long term. It's it's there's no problems with doing you're not going to sort of deplete your own body's ability to make CoQ10. No. Uh, it, and so uh, now I one of the things I'll, I'll mention is that the, the vast majority of the studies that I'm aware of that use CoQ10 were all done on uh, a sick population. Uh, so I'm going to be extrapolating a little bit here um, to, to a healthy population, but uh, two things. Uh, you do have to take it daily because um, if you don't, then your, your body is your, your body's not producing enough on its own. So that supplemental CoQ10, when you stop taking it, that level of CoQ10 will slowly start to decrease back towards baseline. Uh, so you're going to essentially lose the benefit of, of taking CoQ10 if you stop taking it. Uh, to answer your second question, though, um, you know, it, it, are you going to uh, 
you know, is your body going to adapt by making less CoQ10 on its own? And that doesn't appear to be the case. Um, long-term studies with uh, congestive heart failure patients, and, and most most uh, clinical studies on on CoQ10, what they do is they take baseline baseline levels, blood levels, and then you know uh, during the study they take uh, levels again. And you see an increase uh, in, in CoQ10 levels according to supplementation, uh, and then at the end of the study, what they uh, after the study is done, uh, some of them stop taking CoQ10, and you see this slow decline back to base level. But what's interesting is that base is no lower than the starting point. So that would indicate to us that your body isn't making less because of supplementation. It just always had that base level of production. Um, you were just able to increase the, the blood levels um, with supplementation. So again, if you're looking to get the benefit of CoQ10, the idea would be to take it uh, on a continual basis. Okay. And any tips then, just because I'll leave it at this, uh, CoQ10 and anyone can get your book and, and get all the other supplements. Sure. Um, but just so uh, with CoQ10, is there a, a, a clinical level that gets the best benefits? So X amount of milligrams per day or, you know, is there, would you say there's a difference between a petite female and a large male that you yeah. would prescribe? Yeah. So, so this is where it becomes, again, going back to the N of one, um, it, it really becomes an individual thing because, um, and again, I'm going to use data from uh, cardiovascular patients and more specific congestive heart failure patients, but the idea is to get blood levels to at least 2.5 uh, micrograms per mil. Now, um, in some cases, you want to, uh, the best results we're seeing with blood levels at 3.5 micrograms per mil. But you know, you, I think the idea is to to try to get it at least again for congestive heart failure patients to at least that 2.5 micrograms per mil level. Now, that is going to depend. The, the dose that's needed to get to that point is going to vary dramatically from person to person. So I've seen studies where they, uh, you know, a person uh, had great response uh, and was able to reach that level with say 150 milligrams of CoQ10 per day. Um, others needed to take 600 milligrams per day. Um, so it really is one of those individual things. The, the problem with this particular situation though is um, very few labs, at least in North America, I don't know how it is in, in, in the UK, but in, in North America, it's not a, a blood level testing for blood levels of CoQ10 is mm -hmm. not a common thing. And uh, out of the few labs that do it, apparently it's, uh, it's quite expensive. You're looking at about $150 per test. Uh, so, you know, you, you take uh, a blood level one week and then you take a certain dose and you go back in two weeks, to, you know, see if that was the right dose. And if not, you increase the dose, come back two weeks later, you know, every time you take a blood test, it's $150, which can add up uh, pretty quickly. So, uh, so not only the, the cost, but the availability of that um, is, you know, pretty much uh, rules that out as a, as a way to, to move forward for most people. So um, the second best way is what we call um, symptom, um, um, uh, symptom management. So um, what that means is we, as an example, um, just looking at uh, high blood pressure. Uh, if you have high blood pressure and CoQ10 has been shown to benefit high blood pressure, um, you can start with, say, 100 milligrams. Um, and in two weeks, if your blood pressure hasn't come down, you can boost it up to 200 milligrams. And, um, you know, after a couple of weeks, if it still hasn't come down, you can boost it to 300 milligrams. So the idea is to continue to increase the dose until you see a, a therapeutic response. Um, now, this has its own problems because nothing has a 100% success rate, whether you're talking drugs, supplements, or even surgery. So there are going to be a few people that take this approach 
and it will t- continue to take higher and higher doses, but not see the see the benefit. So um, that is one of the reasons why we typically just work within dose dosage range, ranges. So um, again, I'm I'm referring to congestive heart failure patients, but it seems like the therapeutic dose for the vast majority of the individuals, and mind you, it doesn't capture everyone, but the majority of the individuals should be able to get by with anywhere between 100 to 600 milligrams per day. Um, even that is a, is a significant range. But then if you look at um, uh, conditions like Parkinson's, where co- coenzyme Q10 has been studied for as well, some individuals are using 3,000 milligrams per day. So it, it's not only um, looking at the, the individual, but it's also looking at the condition you're looking to treat. So when it comes to, you know, just a, a healthy individual looking to take CoQ10 preventatively, what mm-hmm. dose would that be? I'd probably say it's on the lower end of that congestive heart failure range. So you're looking at 100 to 200 milligrams per day. I think that should be okay. But again, all these studies have really been done on sick individuals. Uh, so that's really where, where, what we have to, to look at as our starting point. But uh, you could logically assume that uh, being healthy you probably don't need to take as much as someone that absolutely needs it and there's no toxicity no sort of side effects from taking it yeah not again when you look at studies based on parkinson's disease patients that were taking you know 3000 milligrams per day and actually one study used 3600 milligrams per day so these are massive amounts um there were no toxicity there was uh, in one study a, a few individuals dropped out because they had GI upset, uh, and that was really attributed just to the the, the, the large dose. Uh, but in terms of actual toxicity, it wasn't shown to uh, to have any toxic effects. So it's one of those supplements that appears to be quite safe, even in large doses. But again, it's not necessarily a, a cheap product to begin with, especially if you're buying something that's clinically researched and shown to actually be absorbed. Uh, so, you know, my take on anything, uh, but especially expensive um, supplements like, like CoQ10 is uh, the minimum needed is, is where to, where to uh, fall. Okay, great. Well, I know we're, um, we're a bit tight for time and you need to travel, but I think you've, you've revealed so many good actionable tips about how to boost someone's energy today. And as you said, exercise is number one, just move your body. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the most powerful thing you can do that your diet does influence it. And there's so many other factors um, that we touched on and your book has even more in this. So I'll put a link to your book in the show notes and, all, and everything. Um, but is there any particular way that anyone could follow you or keep in touch with you? Um, links that I can put in the show notes for listeners? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, my, my author website, which I kind of started after, after uh, getting uh, the book on the way is, uh, is just Lee. No. So L E E K N O W.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter, which is Lee, no uh, 3d. So Lee L E E K N O W 3d. Um, so those are the, the probably the, the best ways to, to follow me and, and reach me if you need to contact. Okay, fantastic. I'll put those in the show notes for listeners. Um, Lee, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you so much for sharing all that uh, awesome information. Thank you for having me. And uh, I I had a good time. Thanks, Gary. 